Hello, I'm Brett Dillon, and this is The Movie Chronicles. This episode, I devote to an investigation into what Sherlock Holmes was getting up to in 2011, beginning with Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows. Director, Guy Ritchie. Script, Michelle and Kieran Maroney. Director of Photography, Philippe Rousselot. Editor, James Herbert. And Music, Hans Zimmer. Actors, Jude Law, Robert Downey Jr., Numi Rapace, Rachel McAdams, Jared Harris, and Stephen Fry. In updating the Holmes oeuvre, Guy Ritchie has given the period a steampunk aesthetic, while referencing the Nightwatch Russian film series. Character is what is sacrificed to make Holmes an action hero. In the sequel, Watson is getting married while Sherlock tries to foil Professor Moriarty's scheme to start World War I, the ultimate capitalist venture. Robert Downey Jr. plays Sherlock the same way he plays Tony Stark, Iron Man. It's a very one-note performance. In his defense, it's a one-note script. Subtlety is not its strong point. The finale suggests a small oxygen cylinder will help you survive a long fall into freezing cold water. Director Guy Ritchie was born on September 10th, 1968, in Hatfield, England. Guy left school at the age of 15. The exact reason has never been nailed down. The three known possibilities are Guy's dyslexia, drug use, or entertaining a girl in his room. Working his way up the film industry through working on commercials, Guy gained a profile with his feature film debut, Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, and its use of hyperactive movement, later reviewed by Empire Magazine as This is a movie that brought the world the strath, Vinnie Jones, hammering someone's skull with a car door, and the knowledge that a big purple dildo can be used as an offensive weapon. Guy kept working in this general area, gaining Roger Ebert's perceptive criticism that his film plots don't build or arrive anywhere. He married Madonna in 2000, the couple divorced in 2008. The marriage, however, created a degree of pushback against his films. I would agree that from 2000 onwards, his films became ever more pretentious. In part, he replied with, I'm not politically motivated. I used to be passionately. I used to be very left-wing. Then I went very right-wing, and now I rest somewhere in the middle. This, I think you'll agree, doesn't really answer that criticism. As his career developed, he also developed the traits of a class trader. Class is very important in the UK. This came to a head in his two Sherlock Holmes films, in which he was accused of taking liberties with the characters and shooting a lot of fights in fussy and tiresome slow motion. In trying to return to his laddish origins, Guy only showed how far from that wellspring he had diverged, and not in a good way. I'll leave Guy with the final word. He said, The English countryside is the most staggeringly beautiful place. I can't spend as much time there as I'd like, but I like everything about it. I like fishing. I like clay pigeon shooting. I am not interested in any issues because it's too sensitive for me.
Director of photography Philippe Rousselot was born on September 4th, 1945 in Brie, Mouethe et Moselle in France. Philip studied cinema at l'École Nationale Supérieure Louis Lumière, where he graduated in 1966. He then recalled, I saw a film by Eric Roma called The Collector, 1967, and I thought the photography was absolutely brilliant. It was really one of the turning points in the history of cinematography, and I said, I have to meet the DOP. Somehow, through friends, I got Nesta Almendros's phone number, and I met with him, and he was very nice, but he didn't have any work to offer to me. Then, through other people I had been working with, I got a call for My Night at Maud's, 1969, because they were in need of a clapper loader. It was a happy accident. There actually was not much loading to do. Roma used so little film. I was loading 400-foot mags and maybe only three in a day. So I did spend a lot of time watching what was happening on set. It was a very small crew, and you could talk to everyone. Before this moment, he was working as an assistant to Nesta. Today, he is best known for his collaborations with director Tim Burton. He has also worked with Jean-Jacques Arnault, Robert Redford, Stephen Frears, John Borman, and Neil Jordan. With Jean-Jacques Binet in 1981's The Diva, Philippe tried to make photographic aesthetics an important component of the film to create a timeless, almost unreal atmosphere. He credits his experiments with China balls, saying in an interview, I've been using China balls for 30 years. I've used a huge amount of them. That's the secret of the economic success of China, is me buying China balls. I used them before everybody else, and it took about 10 years for other cinematographers to understand that those things are very, very useful. Composer Hans Zimmer was born on September 12, 1957, in Frankfurt, Germany. Describing his musical training, Hans mused, My formal training was two weeks of piano lessons. I was thrown out of eight schools, but I joined a band. I'm self-taught, but I've always heard music in my head, and I'm a child of the 20th century. Computers came in very handy. He also said in an interview, My mother was very musical, basically a musician, and my father was an engineer and an inventor. So I grew up modifying the piano, shall we say, which made my mother gasp in horror, and my father would think it was fantastic when I would attach chainsaws and stuff like that to the piano, because he thought it was an evolution in technology. As a teenager, Hans moved to London, England, to attend Hurtwood House School. He also came into contact with the film scores of Ennio Morricone, these inspired him to become a film composer. Hans began his career with the rock group Krakatoa and then helped the Buggles, the members of whom had been part of Krakatoa, with their first album. His band career subsequently echoed this theme. He was moving around Europe, joining and leaving groups. By the 80s, Hans was also writing advertising jingles until partnering with film score veteran Stanley Myers. The pair collaborated on film scores throughout the 1980s. Hans' big break came in 1988 when he was asked to write the score to Rain Man. Other work started rolling in, and he became a favourite of many directors. 
Ridley Scott famously saying, I listen to Zimmer's music and I don't even have to shut my eyes. I can see the pictures. I know I can talk pictures with hands. He responds to pictures. This reached an interesting point when he was scoring The Lion King, 1994. He wanted to go to South Africa to record parts of the score, but was banned due to a South African police record for making subversive movies, to wit, 1992's The Power of One. History was a pawn in the evil machinations of time. On... April the 19th, Prince William of England married Catherine Middleton in Westminster Cathedral. This became an international event. October the 27th, at an emergency meeting in Brussels, the EU agreed to a £1 trillion bailout to offset the sovereign debt crisis caused by US immoral banking practices. November the 29th, in Tehran, Iran, the British Embassy was attacked. On November the 30th, Britain severed diplomatic relationships with Iran. Holmes was also active outside the UK this year, in Sherlock Holmes' Never Been, in the name of Sherlock Holmes, although the German description is probably better. Sherlock Holmes unter Geheimnisvoll Zirkus. That's the language in which I first came across it. Director and editor, Zolt Bernath. Script, Mark Kisabo. Director of photography, Tamas Svenkuti. Editor, Zoltan Vag. Music, Robert Gullia. Actors, Svenassi Christoph, Ungvar Adam, Kugla Nicolette, and Tibor Gaspar. Welcome to Hungary, and my mispronunciation of Hungarian. You might expect Sherlock Holmes to be in Hungary, but you're probably like me, and are not expecting Sherlock Holmes as a cultural hero in Hungary. This children's film takes the concept of Sherlock Holmes and runs with the idea in interesting directions. Critics who claim a children's film that mixes Sherlock Holmes with a narrative of magic is an unworthy entry into their Holmes oeuvre probably haven't read too many of the great detective's stories. Arthur Conan Doyle was a man who famously believed in fairies and ghosts. His Sherlock Holmes work frequently reads as gothic horror tales until Sherlock pulls the rug out from under the reader, leading to a painful encounter with the floor. The idea of setting homes in the modern era isn't new. It began in the silent era. The US in the 30s and early 40s ran with the idea until it ran away with them. The circus setting is a new twist. Conan Doyle never sent homes to the circus, probably because the theatricality of the location would undercut Holmes's own theatricality. As for encouraging you to see the film, I will mention it won several awards in the youth section. In the film, two boys, Holmes and Watson, investigate the disappearance of children in the vicinity of a circus. They are aided by an unfortunately named for English speakers, Girl Ica. 
the children's dreams are being stolen and Holmes must dream up a solution. Author Arthur Conan Doyle was born on May the 22nd, 1859 in Edinburgh, Scotland, and he died in 1930. Arthur's father died in 1893 after many years of psychiatric illness. During the boy's formative years, his father was an alcoholic, and it was all downhill from there. Wealthy uncles sent Arthur to England for a public education, meaning a private school, for which he later mused, any exercise, however stupid in itself, form a sort of mental dumbbell by which one can improve one's mind. From 1876 to 1881, Arthur studied medicine at the University of Edinburgh Medical School, a very exciting time for, under the influence of Darwin, amongst others, medicine was falling under the spell of the scientific method. Whilst studying, Arthur also wrote short stories. Uh, note his first published story wasn't until 1879. In 1880, Arthur was doctor aboard the whaling ship Hope. He completed a doctorate of medicine in 1885. Skipping backwards in time a little, Arthur set himself up in private practice in 1882, but could never get enough patients to pay the bills. He started doodling short stories to pass the time, and even studied ophthalmology to try and get an income as a specialist. It was all for naught. He wrote and published his first Sherlock Holmes story in 1886 and gave the company all the publishing rights to the tale. It was successful enough that the publishing company, Ward Locke, commissioned a further story. By its completion, Arthur understood he was being exploited and terminated the arrangement. Instead, he turned to Strand Magazine and a new contract. Arthur did not like the Sherlock Holmes character, and he resented the success so he kept renegotiating his contract to force the publishers to pay him a ridiculous amount of money until they were forced to let him go. Publishers kept paying whatever he asked, and he became the best-paid author of this period. Undeterred, Arthur took the next step and killed off Holmes in 1893. The bugger wouldn't stay dead, the tenaciousness of the fictional. His hideous zombie form returned in 1903, partly in response to the bleating of his audience. To be honest, the pre-death stories are superior to the post-death ones. Arthur had become lazy in his narrative construction. Most of the pre-death stories share details with the reader so the reader can work out the solution. Post-death, details are withheld, so Sherlock can appear to be the smartest man in the room. Critics, but not me, prefer Arthur's historical fiction, which I found a bit of a slog. Others prefer his science fiction stylings in the Professor Challenger series. Politically, Arthur is a mixed bag of prejudices. In 1909, he wrote against the genocide in the Congo. This brought him into association with Roger Casement, whose execution he tried to prevent after the Easter Rising in Ireland, 1916. As Casement's involvement involved the undermining of British authority in Ireland, this is curious behaviour from Arthur because he was a rabidly anti-German warhound. 
He was also influential in setting up the Court of Criminal Appeal in England. This investigated cases of wrongful conviction. If you've read the Professor Challenger series, the following won't be a surprise. If you only know Arthur through his character Sherlock Holmes, you are about to be shocked. Arthur was fascinated in the mythical and paranormal. He also had zero analytical skills in this field, leading to arguments with his friend, Harry Houdini, who debunked such claims of supernatural phenomena. In 1889, Arthur became a founding member of the Hampshire Society for Psychical Research. But, given it was based on the unstated premise that psychical phenomena actually existed, not a lot of science, rather than seance, was done. Most famously, in 1922, Arthur published The Coming of Fairies, in which, among other things, he tried to lay to rest the idea that the Cottingley fairy photographs were fakes. Deaths passed somberly along the months. On January the 2nd, Peter Pothelthwaite, the British actor, born 1946. January the 15th, Susanna York, British actor, born 1939. January the 24th, Bernard Eichinger, the German producer, director, screenwriter, born 1949. January the 30th, John Barry, the British composer, born 1933. February the 12th, Peter Alexander, the Austrian actor, born 1926. March the 17th, Michael Goff, the British actor, born 1916. March the 23rd, Elizabeth Taylor, the British actor, born 1932. Next episode, we enter the stick world of William in the 1940s, as I guide you through the Just William series from England. No one, I hope, will be surprised that there are so many Sherlock Holmes films out there that an e-book on the subject is being prepared even as I speak. Publication date, as yet, undecided. If you like this show, consider becoming a Patreon supporter. Consider a little harder. My bank balance isn't becoming any larger while we wait. That's the spirit. Now I can continue to provide content. Well, that's it for today. Jolly holly sticks, everyone. Toodaloo and pip-pip-what.